This is the last in a seven-part series of talks by Joel titled Devotion 7, Doing Nothing, recorded October 21, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, uh, let's just again talk a little bit about the practice and any questions about the practice. First of all, were any of you able to identify that elemental sense of your own blind being? Yeah. This is a question. I kept um, getting real quiet, and then, for example, an external sound would kind of um, shock me out of that quietude. And the same thing happens, and shock is a good word, like a little alarm clock mm-hmm. as I'm falling into that silence, you know, I sort of wake myself up with this, with this uh, uncomfortable. So let me get this straight. Sounds would do that for you, but you would do it spontaneously. Spontaneously, every time I got locked up, I was going in. Right. Sort of like, uh, in fact, it's exactly like I experienced when I'm falling asleep, and sometimes I, you know, right. resist and, and I'm waking. You know. So this means two things, good and bad, the good news and the bad news. The good news, it means you are starting to fall into this state of classic samadhi. Nirvakapa Samadhi. And it's quite similar to falling asleep. So that's why there's a close parallel there. The idea is to do this lucidly, but otherwise you really are passing out of, uh, or let's put it this way, this waking world objects and so forth are passing out of consciousness. And then that reaction is the awareness looks into where we're going and sees nothing, which is good, but, but yes, but it doesn't necessarily want to go there. I mean, there's a big black hole, right? I don't, I don't see. Okay. Yes, that's the point. You don't see. <laughs> yes. And we have an instinctive reaction to say, oh, wait a minute. So if we're too lucid when we're falling asleep, normally, I mean, if we're not doing a spiritual practice, or even if we are, but sometimes you're too awake and you're going to sleep lucidly and you experience that and there's that jerking back to consciousness so to wakeful consciousness i should say so all that means is you're on the right track here you're getting up to the edge of the cliff and you're starting to look over and you know uh so well, this happens every time we try this exercise yes we have we have done it before. That's okay. That's okay. Well, don't worry about it. So one one day that the uh, you know the earth will tremble slightly and you lose your footing. Or, you know the point is you have to keep coming back to the edge. You have to keep coming back to the edge. And then there's always an element of grace in this that you can't control. So you don't have to even worry about that. Anybody else? Yes, Miriam. How does this elemental sense of our being differ from just that elemental sense that we carry around with us all the time? Ah, Well, it doesn't fundamentally differ. This is the foundation on which our full-blown sense of self is built. So normally when people think of themselves or when they're questioned about themselves, you know, you think of yourself as female or male. Uh, You think of yourself as a an American rather than a Mexican if you're traveling in Mexico. Do you know what I mean? All these 
forms and roles and stuff we identify with. Our thoughts, our tastes, our feelings. Uh, you know, I'm, well, I'm a sentimental sort of person. These are things that distinguish us from other people and give us that full-blown sense of self. But when we start to strip them down, which is what this practice is about, we're not stripping it down the way a Janana does. We're giving it away, so to speak. Everything is sacrificed on the altar of the beloved. We finally get down to what is the minimal sense of self there, underneath all this. You see what I mean? Yes. Um, well, in the meditation, I, I drop down into darkness, a lot of just deeper and deeper levels of darkness. It, at times it felt like the room and my body were moving up, and at times it felt like there was a sense of dropping down, but it was down, 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 down. And when it got to the place where I couldn't go any deeper, and it was very, very dark, I said, who is it that's experiencing this, you know? <clears throat> and um, then in the second round, there was a flash of what Gail must have been talking about, just a, it wasn't dark, it wasn't anything, it was non-dark, it was non-anything, a flash of, <gasps> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I had the wherewithal at that moment to ask, who is it that's experiencing that? Wow, that's you good know? wherewithal. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was fast. Right, yeah. Um, and throughout the rest of the time, it was, it was the deep darkness, but there was, you know, this, this something else, and, and it startled me, like Gail was describing, yeah. sort of, you know, and, yeah. It sounds like the exact same phenomenon, and as I said to Gail, that's, that's a sign of getting close. That reaction means you're really starting to sense the boundlessness of this abyss. And that's what makes us sort of react that way. What's amazing is it wasn't dark anymore, but it wasn't light either. It's hard to... Yes, nothing. True nothing yeah. is not dark yeah, or light. Or light. That's so right. Weird. I mean, that's exactly right. Got that before. I, you know, you just have to like be there for a split. That's, <laughs> that's, that's very deep. <laughs> yes, Alan. It's a very weird experience. So when I get deep into the point where I could see this is myself watching, I started asking different questions, just like Joe said. And at some point, I felt I'm touching something which is completely beyond my will. It was like I started I experienced some kind of deep steering, and it was completely beyond my will, as if by divine power or something. And suddenly, my focus of consciousness changed into the field of consciousness. And I remained like a field till the end of the meditation. There was absolutely no effort. And I felt like the whole room and everybody here was included in me. Uh -huh. So there was a clear, discrete transition from being a center of consciousness uh -huh. to being a field of consciousness. Uh -huh. Very discrete transition which happened be not because of my will. I could not have done it. Right. It happened 
maybe within a second after I started prodding and nudging and steering that point, the point disappeared into this field and field remained. And are you still the field? I soon lost it during dinner, but it went ah. until I walked to, to the uh, dining room. It was with me all the time. Okay. The important thing, if this happens to you again for a prolonged period of time like this, is to notice what happens when, when the shift of identity stops being the field and becomes you again. It's kind of narrowing because the field experience so much more than I can see and hear. It's like my mind stretches all over the room and much beyond. Right. And then I open the eyes and I started moving them and somehow this field of consciousness gets narrow, narrow, narrow and I'm back to my own self. Right. So that is what you need to watch closely. But what's amazing is that in that field there is no uh, separate identity. The objects appear, so my thoughts come, and I hear the people walking in the room, and things like this happen, but it happens in me, rather than it happens to me. Yes, yes. But what I'm saying is you're still having an experience, because otherwise, if it's not an experience, if it's a realization, then the field can't narrow, nothing can happen in that. What you need to do is, instead of hanging out and enjoying the field, I mean, that's fine too, but you need to find out why it is that the identification arises again with some limited form. I try to understand it. In fact, I walked out and there was complete sensation of the field, so no separation from what I see and what I feel. But then when I started eating and I started thinking, oh, I have to wash the dishes, somehow it narrowed down and I became normal self. That's right. You have a wonderful opportunity here because you have the contrast of the field and then identification. But there is something to an insight to be had, let me put it that way, in that process. Hanging out in the field itself is not enlightenment. Enlightenment is the realization of the truth about what is going on. What is going on, regardless of what's arising or passing away in the field? I understand, I watch it, but what I really noticed is how I entered the field rather than how I left. How you get into it, I mean, if you can get into it easily, that's great. But you don't even have to know how you got into it. You have to know how you got out of it. Because that's the key to getting out completely. Good. Anybody else get some sense of your own elemental blind being? Yes. I had similar experiences, but never when I'm meditating. Always when I'm just lying down, trying to go to sleep, da da da, and then boom. You're going to get to do that in about an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's true. This is a very good time to try to do this practice when you're falling asleep. Especially, by the way, if you're having trouble falling asleep. You know, people get restless and then time is passing and they think, God, I'm not going to get any sleep tonight and you get more. So if you can't sleep, then why don't you lie in bed and try this? And then if worse comes to worse, you will go right to sleep, but you'll get your sleep. But otherwise, you might have a, a slower, more lucid sort of experience and be able to drop into this easily. Okay. 
as I said, the paths, the two paths are really merging here, but there's a slight shift of emphasis between a bhakti approach and a jnana approach. So if you do get to a point where you're beginning to sense this elemental sense of your own blind being in the practice, then there are two things you could do, basically. And if you are taking a janana approach, then at this moment you would inquire, who's experiencing this? Who's experiencing this? Or when you encountered and identified this elemental sense of your own blind being, if you have been practicing surrender as a bhakti, then you surrender this to the beloved. Or at this point, you don't even surrender to the beloved, you just surrender it into the mystery. You make it an act of self-surrender. Or I should say you try. Because at this point, you're going to run into a paradox. Either way. If you're taking the Janana approach and you're asking the question, well, who is experiencing this? You're going to discover that this elemental sense of your own blind being isn't you, isn't yourself. It is some object in consciousness that's being observed. And so if you let that go, ignore that and so forth, and then you get down to a subtler elemental sense of your own blind being, and you ask, well, who's experiencing this? Well, then you realize, well, wait a minute, this isn't the I here. This is an even subtler object in consciousness. And if you keep going this way, it's infinite regress. You keep stepping back and stepping back and stepping back, and there's no end to it. You are never going to find the subject to consciousness. The subject to consciousness can never appear as an object before consciousness. If you're taking the bhakti approach, you run into the paradox we've talked about often of the self trying to surrender the self. It's the same basic paradox. As long as the self is trying to surrender the self, there is self there. Does everybody get that one? Yes, Peggy. Were you saying that the self trying to surrender the self is the problem? Well, if there's a self surrendering the self, then there is a self. As long as there's the self-surrendering, there's a self, by definition. It's sort of like, like uh, here's a, a very crude example, but let's say you had a wheelbarrow, and I said, take out all the chairs and pillows and stuff out of this room in a wheelbarrow, and then take yourself out in a wheelbarrow. <laughs> That's a complete stop. Oh. <laughs> Another one fall into bewilderment and distress. <laughs> We're making good progress here. <laughs> yes. Is it a good time to talk about um, the role of attention? 
in this whole scheme because there's such a, um, as you're, you know, as we're doing this practice or anything, there's that attention which keeps this whole thing going, mm-hmm. you know. And so where does that um, play into this? Well, that's another way you can, uh, at this point of having the experience of your elemental sense of your own blind being, if you notice that, okay, this is actually a very, very subtle object of experience that I'm attending to, as I said earlier, you can try to find the source of that attention. But then you're running into the problem with the flashlight, you know? How do I get the flashlight to shine on its source. So I'm just saying that we're getting to the point where what you're instructed to do, you can't do anymore. Yes. I tried to go deeper in my practice and I couldn't. Yes. And the idea of the surrender came to me basically spontaneously. I sort of counted attention, commitment, detachment, more or less, but no surrender. And I started to repeat this word, just surrender, surrender, surrender. It was not my mantra. But I started to repeat it blindly, basically. And after maybe five minutes, I was taken by this divine power and basically brought into the field. It was completely beyond my will. So I couldn't affect it with the word surrender, but surrender somehow helped me focus on the idea of letting go of everything. Yeah, but you haven't let go of everything yet because you're still here. <laughs> so, yeah, listen, I, Alan, I'm, I'm saying you were in a wonderful, very pure state with a tremendous opportunity, but you keep coming back to how wonderful the state was and you keep thinking about how you got there. But the, the point is the state is... And I'm just trying to make a very strong point. The state by itself is worthless. It's the realization that is possible. And in that state, the opportunity for the realization is tremendously high. That's what gives the state value. Uh, My comment was only about surrender. Yes, I know. But that's what I'm saying. Yes, surrender propelled you into the state. And that's as far as surrender will get you. It will get you into a state. But it cannot accomplish the root of the root. That's what I'm getting at right here. So my feeling is that the root has its own being. It doesn't follow my will. Now, now, now you're thinking. Now you're thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop trying to figure it out. You're doing fine. Don't screw it up with a lot of thought. <laughs> yes. My most profound experiences of this have been when falling asleep or waking up. So I have, there's never been, I mean, the way you're talking, you're sort of describing it in terms of a person having experience then doing something. But when this has happened to me, there's never been any sense that there was somebody there who could do anything about it. That's right. That's, and Alan was describing that too. It's not up to his will or anything's going on that he could do anything about. So I'm wondering what this instruction means. <laughs> That's going to get worse in a minute. But <laughs> you let me get on with here, okay? We do have to move on here. We, and we are getting a little wrapped up in plot. But look at your minds. They're all trying to figure this out. I'm trying to tell you you can't figure it out, but your mind won't accept that. Oh, no. It's got to keep gnawing away, gnawing away, gnawing away. 
I'm going to give you something more to gnaw away on now, because this paradox of trying to see yourself, to put it crudely, in a Janana sense, or trying to surrender yourself, cannot be done. It cannot be done. And that's a paradox we've talked about often at this point on a spiritual path. And we've gotten here before. For those of you who've been on, not on a spirit, well, we've talked about it on a spiritual path, but we've also talked about it on retreat on Friday night, right about this time. <laughs> For years. For years, right. <laughs> it's going to be a long night, Paul. <laughs> But there's a deeper problem, a worse problem, okay? Here's Ibn Arabi. And he says, most of those who know God, that's Gnostics, mystics, most of those who know God make a ceasing of existence and the ceasing of that ceasing a condition of attaining knowledge of God. So I just have to explain this a little bit. It's what we've been practicing, so it's not that far off, but now it's a little bit more precise. He's talking about what I believe somewhat like this in Arabic, the fana of the fana, the passing away of the existence of the self, and then the passing away of the passing away. And what that refers to is that, and this is your problem, Alan, <laughs> that the self has to pass away in a state of kenosis. The self and the objects, I mean existence, has to pass away in a completely pure state of kenosis. But then that state itself has to pass away. In other words, the state of emptiness has to pass away <clears throat> in order for a form to arise so the realization can occur that the form is nothing but the emptiness. It's a form of the emptiness. Or we could put it this way, the realization that after the subject and the object has been eliminated from consciousness and there is nothing but consciousness, then an object arises and it is recognized as being not an object, but just simply a form of that consciousness. That is full, complete gnosis. That's what constitutes full, complete gnosis. Uh, this is illustrated quite clearly in the legend of the Buddha's awakening. And if you remember, we told the story in the beginning of this retreat, didn't we? How he started off and he saw the sick man, the old man, and the dead man, and then he went on a spiritual path. And then we're going to skip over his path, except to say he tried all these practices, a lot of ascetic practices, but he tried all these practices of absorption too, going to deeper and deeper states of samadhi, having the objects disappear, being the field of nothing and all that. And that's as far as he got. He got to the peak of cyclic existence, but he didn't get out. So he gave it all up and he went, he sat down under the Bodhi tree and he said, okay, I'm just going to sit here until I either get enlightened or die. That's, that's it. And he sat there. And then as the legend goes, throughout the night, he had a series of 
realizations, which we could uh, call noetic realizations to borrow Dr. Wolf's terms. He understood how conditioned arising works. He saw his past lives. There's something else he saw in there. He saw how samsara operated. He didn't see anything about enlightenment in these realizations, but he saw very clearly the mechanism of how samsara operated. He saw all that, and then it all ended, and there he was in a state of the ceasing of existence, kenosis, as Ibn Arabi describes it. And then he saw the morning star, and then he woke up. That's crucial that he saw the morning star. If he hadn't seen the morning star, he would be like uh, Alan. (laughs) 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 So this is critical. So this is what Ibn Arabi is referring to that those who know God are saying. There has to be the ceasing of existence, the state of kenosis, and then there has to be a return of existence so that it can be recognized as identical to the non-existence, so there's no duality. The recognition is the enlightenment, not the state, not either of these states, no state. Go states and states and states. You can cycle through states through all eternity, and that itself does not wake you up. But... Ibn Arabi goes on. Let me go back and pick up the quote. Most of those who know God make a ceasing of existence and the ceasing of that ceasing a condition of attaining knowledge of God. But that is an error and a clear oversight. Huh? I just explained it to you, didn't I? Now he's telling me I'm wrong? How dare him is right. How dare him? Why would he say that? So he goes on. He says, for the knowledge of God, by the way, knowledge here means gnosis. It doesn't mean, you know, intellectual or theological knowledge. For the knowledge of God does not presuppose the ceasing of existence, nor the ceasing of that ceasing. For things have no existence. And what does not exist cannot cease to exist. We get that? Wow, yes, wow. What's all this talk about ceasing of existence and ceasing of the ceasing? Nothing exists. Things don't have existence to begin with. For the ceasing to be implies the positing of existence. And that is polytheism. In Islam, polytheism is the worst, you know, sin. I mean, you worshiping anything other than Allah. But for a Sufi, polytheism is positing anything other than Allah, that anything could exist but Allah. So if you think that things exist and they pass away, you're an idolater. Then if thou knowest thyself without existence or ceasing to be, then thou knowest God. And if not, then not. This is why Ibn Arabi is called the Sheikh al-Akbar. Am I getting somewhat close? Ballpark anyway? The greatest of sheikhs. The greatest of sheikhs. So, 
all this struggle to sacrifice the self, to see the self, to arrive at this state where the self disappears. It's all nonsense. It's literally nonsense. There was no self to begin with. You're all trying to get rid of yourselves, but it's crazy. <laughs> I told you. That, yes. He's crazy. <laughs> I'm crazier than you are. If you only knew how crazy I was, you wouldn't still be here, I'll tell you. <laughs> Lewis. Isn't going through all of this, the purpose is to see that it really is nonsense? You have to go through the nonsense to see that it's nonsense, and that's the path? Uh, yes, you could say that. that. See, that's one of those big secrets that I'm giving away, but I trust you will not believe it and or forget it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so all this talk about passing away and the spiritual death at the end of the path and all that there's nothing to pass away there's nothing to die and so who or what could possibly undergo all this now as great as Ibn Arabi uh, was it's not that he was the only mystic who knew this. There were others. And in fact, I must tell you that if you truly are a Gnostic, you know this. You might not have the eloquence to be able to express it this way, but this is what full Gnosis makes absolutely, obviously plain and clear. But here's Ramana Maharshi. And he says the same thing about self-realization, which all his students are struggling for, waiting for, when are they going to get self-realized and all this? And he says, in a sense, speaking of self-realization is a delusion. Who is to realize what and how when all that exists is the self and nothing but the self? So what is this talk of self-realization? Here's Zen master Huang Po. Here's the way he puts it. And he uh, uses the word bodhi here, which is another term for ultimate reality. Bodhi is no state. The Buddha did not attain to it. Sentient beings do not lack it. It cannot be reached with the body nor sought with the mind. All sentient beings are already of one form with the Buddha. How can you get what you already possess? How can you go to where you already are? How can you leave where you're not? So then the question is, so what can you do? And of course the answer is nothing. <laughs> Back to samsara at last. Oh my God. <laughs> You're all going to enjoy those escapist TV shows, aren't you? <laughs> and the reason you can't do anything is because you aren't here. Meister Eckhart says, everything stands for God and you see only God in all the world. 
Inside, outside, wherever you look, there's nothing but God. There's nothing but God out there, and there's nothing but God in here. As Lali Shwari says, Shiva sees through your eyes. Shiva hears through your ears. Shiva speaks with your tongue. Shiva makes your breath move in and out and digests your food when you eat. Even your seeking is not being done by you. Here's Rumi. Lovers themselves do not seek. In the whole world, there is no seeker but he. Remember I said in the beginning that the love and the longing, which is what prompts our seeking, is actually God's love flowing. So that's what Rumi's saying here. If we're going to use the terminology of seeking, we're not seeking, God's seeking. Did you want to say something? No. no. <laughs> so, we have arrived at that point on this retreat, if not on your actual path, where there is nothing more to do. And Lao Tzu describes this very clearly. You see, we've all read this before. We all know this. This is why I count on you forgetting it for next time. In a year from now, we'll be back here talking about the same stuff. Here's what Lao Tzu says. In the pursuit of learning, one knows more every day. In the pursuit of the way, one does less every day. One does less and less until one does nothing at all. And when one does nothing at all, there is nothing that is undone. So, there's one other little thing to say about this. Having arrived at the place where there is nothing more to do is not the same as deciding that there is nothing more to do. And this is why Ramana Maharshi says about sadhanas, which is the Sanskrit term for practices, sadhanas are needed so long as one has not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles. Let's listen very closely, especially those of you who are admirers of Ramana. This is not a whole teaching about how you can go home now and just pig out on your couch and not do any more practices. <laughs> practices are needed. Sadhanas are needed so long as one is not realized. They are for putting an end to obstacles, which we have been doing all through this retreat. Finally, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadness. Are any of you there yet? That's what I've been trying to bring you tonight. You feel helpless? Good. See, it's good. More, one, they're falling right and left. It started over here, and boom, boom, it's the domino effect. <laughs> Finally, uh, there comes a stage when a person feels helpless, notwithstanding the sadness. He is unable to pursue the much-cherished sadness. Unable to pursue them. It is then that God's power is realized. The self reveals itself. 
So keep that in mind. It's not a question of your deciding, I understand Ramana Maharshi, okay, I'll quit my practices. I'll go home and, uh, you know, watch TV and wait for the lightning to strike. It ain't going to happen that way, or at least the probabilities are way against it. This is why Zen master Sengsan says, when you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. So if you try not to do anything, well... You're back in that paradox, aren't you? If you try to become effortless, you're making effort. In other words, we are up that famous old creek without a paddle. <laughs> Is it also yeah. that sort of like why when you're walking along and um, then just all of a sudden everything is like it's like the the everything is just um, like, like Shiva, everything is like God, everything is like the voice, you know, you're the, and because you're not trying to do anything, you're just walking along and, and you notice that that'll come up and see everything just, is like what it is. Yes, and this principle operates all through life, in fact, doesn't it? You don't have to be on a spiritual path or anything. Any, any kind of creative thing you do, you're writing a song, you're writing a poem, you're you know trying to do anything like that. Usually what happens is you put in a lot of effort, you a lot of effort, you get to a place where you throw up your hands and then boom, something comes to you. Has everyone had that experience? Okay, so that's a little example of what's going on here. You know, see, the truth that mystics talk about isn't the truth just of something spiritual. It's the truth of the whole world and how it works. All the time, every moment. So it's not surprising that we discover it in uh, other ways, but outside of some context of a teaching, that's the trouble. We just don't know what to make of it. It's just some mysterious, quirky thing, and, and we go on ignoring it and continue with our conditioning. We don't let it transform us. Yes? I'm just curious, when Todd had his awakening, was Abdul sitting on his bed, the morning star for him? Yes, yeah. yes, exactly right, exactly right. Actually, Abdullah was both. He's what wiped his mind clean because he just couldn't fathom what he was looking at. And then there was the form. So I present it as a two-step thing, and it can be. I mean, for me, it was like in that space, that total kenosis, there's reality, and then I turn on the light and it's still the same reality. It's not different, even though one is nothing and one is something. See, there's no difference between something and nothing. So sometimes it's, uh, Peggy mentioned a bird call. Another famous Zen master, Ikikyu, that's how he woke up. He'd been meditating for nine years under a very strict Zen master. He didn't go to the cushy temples they had at that time in Japan and stuff, he found this very strict Zen master who had a little very Spartan community by a lakeside. And they meditated, you know, I mean, you think the climate here is bad. They didn't have any heat or anything. They went barefoot, you know, like the Carmelites, you know, in Spain and stuff. And they meditated in all sorts of weather and whatnot. And then he was out rowing on the lake. You know, just out, relaxed, taking a little time off. And his mind opened up. Everything at once. 
in that one event. Okay. So we're going to practice doing nothing here. <laughs> For our last formal meditation, not our last formal meditation together, our last meditation together where you're getting a teaching. We'll be meditating in the morning tomorrow, and then you're going to have all day to... Uh, to do nothing. To do nothing. No. I'm going to give you instructions in the morning, and it's not necessarily going to be doing nothing. I'll tell you. If you think you're getting off the hook tomorrow and getting a break, you're not. But tonight you get a break. But I'm going to do something, and I'm going to give you what is uh, known in the Zen tradition as direct pointing instructions. And uh, you're not supposed to do nothing here with this. So don't uh, try to follow the instructions. If your mind wants to follow the instructions, don't interfere with it, of course, because that would be doing too. You see what I mean? So what I do is irrelevant for you. It may not be irrelevant for your mind or your attention or your heart or other things, but for you, it's irrelevant because you aren't there. You don't exist. Okay? Is everybody seated back down here? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Now just relax and close your eyes and surrender all effort. Surrender the effort to surrender. And just rest quietly. Allow both body and mind to relax.
allow attention to relax. Allow attention to relax into the space of awareness. All week we've been looking for the Beloved, but the Beloved is what's happening right now. Let your attention flow outwards to the sound of this voice, to the words this voice speaks. Simply realize the sound of this voice is the sound of the Beloved. The words this voice speaks are the words of the Beloved. Let your attention flow inward. Is there understanding of these words? That understanding is the understanding of the beloved. Within the understanding, is there the naked hearing of the sound of this voice? The naked hearing is the hearing of the Beloved. The sound, the words, the understanding and the hearing It's all only the Beloved.
Attend to the sensations that you feel. The sensations are the beloved. The feeling of them is the beloved. The one who feels them is the beloved. Allow your eyes to gently open. Realize that the forms which arise in awareness are forms of the beloved. The perceiver of the forms is the beloved. All this sensory world is the beloved. Whatever thoughts are arising belong to the beloved.
whatever emotions are felt, belong to the beloved. Allow attention to go where it will, from sights to sounds to sensations, inward, outward, like a bee moving from flower to flower. Attention is the beloved, and the movement of attention is the movement of the beloved. You are seeking the beloved. Is the beloved seeking? You are loving the beloved. Is the beloved's loving? The awareness of all this, the sights, sounds, sensations, feelings, thoughts, the movement of attention, the loving, the longing, is the awareness of the beloved.
everything is the beloved. Now is the beloved. And now and now eternally now. You've been looking for the beloved, but the truth is you cannot possibly escape from the beloved. You are the beloved. You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions.